The scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from, its, from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why don't we begin with prayer? As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, O Lord, so may it be for this portion of your word, according to your promise, that it will accomplish that which you purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which you sent it. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. David Letterman, once the host of The Late Show, uh, came back from retirement with a beard actually longer and whiter than mine, if you can imagine, Um, that being possible, to host his show titled, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. And you may think, having heard this passage, that my next sermon needs no introduction, because it's a very familiar passage. We've, We've heard it before, you know, it's about how God's word cuts deep. But perhaps it's because it's so familiar to us that we actually do need an introduction. Context matters, always. Context always matters when it comes to the Word of God. And these verses that I just read that are so familiar to us, these are not verses that the author of Hebrews, you know, just kind of drops into a series of propositions. The author drops these propositions into a story. A story that goes back to the seventh day of creation and forward to the eternal rest of heaven. It's a story of the people of God hardening their hearts to the promises of God and failing to enter God's promised rest. At one point in time, God's promised rest centered on a place, the promised land. But even that land pointed to a true and greater rest that all God's people All those who are children of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ will inherit if we will take God at his word. It's into that story with its attendant promises and warnings of blessings that the author drops this truth about God's word, that it will accomplish the purpose for which God has given it. The warnings that we hear throughout the course of Hebrews, and especially as we look back on that story, the the warnings that those who do not persevere will not enter God's rest will come to pass. God's word will see to it. And the promises that those who do obey God's word and do cling fast to his promises will enter God's rest those promised blessings will likewise come to pass. God's word will see to that as well. And all who would seek to hide from God, who who would think that they can prevent God's word from exposing their spiritual nakedness, are invited by God's word out into the open. 
out into the reality of who they are before God. And that invitation comes by the powerful and effective word of God himself. So yes, the word of God does cut deep, far deeper than we realize, especially as we consider it in light of the larger story of redemption. So there's two things that I want us to consider this morning as we wrap up this section, which extends from uh, chapter three, verse six, through chapter four, verse 13. Two things I want us to consider. First, the warnings in the wilderness, the warning in the wilderness, and second, the working of God's word. Just to those, those two points, the warning in the wilderness and the working of God's word. So first, the warning uh, in the wilderness Verse 11 invites us to go back and consider everything that's been said in this section from chapter three, verse six, down through chapter four, verse 13. Verse 11 says, let us therefore, so the therefore invites us to look back, strive to enter that rest. We're gonna hear here, opportunity to look back and consider what rest the author is referring to so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the author is concluding, he's wrapping up an argument, warnings that he's been giving throughout this section of chapter three, verse six, and chapter four, verse 13. The author has connected us very deliberately and, 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 and creatively and powerfully to the wilderness generation of God's people through his use of Psalm 95. Now again, who are the wilderness people that he's referring to? He's referring to the people whom God delivered out of Egypt through Moses, right? The, the people who were in bondage in Egypt for, I think it was 700 years, um, and, and God delivered them from Pharaoh. God, God led them by the, the pillar of uh, fire by day and, and by night to the very edge of the promised land through the wilderness, the people rejected God's promise. They did not believe that he would provide the promised land to them, all but Joshua and Caleb, who returned and gave the favorable report. Everyone else listened to the 10 spies, hardened their hearts even further toward God, actually asked that they could be delivered back into Egypt and slavery in Pharaoh's house, and in fact, would wander through the wilderness and die there. That's the wilderness generation to whom whom uh, the author is referring. It's also the generation to whom David was referring in Psalm 95, that passage of scripture that this author of Hebrews draws on so heavily in this section. Now, David, who wrote Psalm 95, is saying to his generation, listen, don't be like them. Don't harden your heart as they did and fail to enter God's rest. And again, we considered this last week. You could imagine those who were receiving Psalm 95 from David and, and generations you know, afterwards who were singing these words of David might have been asking David, or at least in their own minds, what do you mean fail to enter God's rest? We're here. We're in the land of Canaan. We've got the temple. We've got, we're here. And of course, the response is no, that land, this land that they were in, it points to a true and greater rest that is to come. And the author of Hebrews in drawing on Psalm 95, which points back to the wilderness generation, is inviting us to see, and this is something that we so often, I think, miss as kind of individual Western Christians, I'm guilty of this as well, we miss the continuity that we have with the people of God throughout every generation. 
So before we move on to a new section of Hebrews and, and, and dive more into what it means for Jesus to be our high priest, it's good to look back and reflect on what the author of Hebrews has been doing in this section so that we can see the continuity that we have with God's people. We need to remember that we share the same origin. They were delivered from slavery. We've been delivered from slavery. Their delivery from slavery was delivery from slavery, slavery in Egypt. They were actually, as part of their rescue from slavery in Egypt, delivered from God's wrath through the blood of countless lambs that were slain and their blood put on the doorpost. We, too, have been delivered from slavery to sin, having been rescued from God's wrath by the very Son of God, His blood, the Lamb of God. We're on the same kind of journey between their deliverance from slavery in Egypt to the rest of the promised land of Canaan, they experienced 40 years in the wilderness. Some, like Joshua and Caleb and, and, and some of those you know, who were among the children of the Exodus generation that, that rose up, became adults, they believed God's promise. They persevered in their obedience to God's command, and they would enter God's rest, but some did not persevere. In fact, that entire generation of adults that were delivered out of Egypt fell in the wilderness because of their disobedience. They did not enter God's promised rest. We too are on a journey from that slavery, that deliverance that we have through faith in Jesus Christ to that eternal and promised rest that we will enjoy when we are home with Jesus. Some who make that profession will persevere. Some will not. Some, we pray, many in fact, Revelation gives us a picture of a multitude, countless number of people before the throne of God rejoicing. But the author of Hebrews is warning us, and the author of Hebrews is not alone in warning us, that there are those who would profess to be followers of Jesus Christ who will not, in fact, endure until the end. They will fail to persevere they will fall away. They will die in the wilderness, as it were, just as so many of those did in the Exodus generation. So we've consequently received the same kind of warnings. Again, the author of Hebrews is drawing on this so that we can hear the same warnings that the people in the Exodus generation heard, that the people in David's day heard, that the people in he, you know, the author of Hebrews' day were hearing. We need to hear the same warnings. So in chapter 3, verse 15... When it says there, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's a warning to us to not harden our hearts. It comes back again in chapter 4, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 12 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. As it did for those who fell away then, so too for us who fail to hold fast to the promises of God and endure to the end today, we will not enter God's rest. We've received the same warnings. We're called to the same response. Chapter 3, verse 6, hold fast to your confidence. Chapter 3, verse 14 
For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, persevere. We must persevere. There's so much at stake here. Again, if we're going to see ourselves in this larger story of God's people journeying through the wilderness, we have to feel with even greater uh, a sense of confidence and, uh, I'm sorry, sense of consequence, the warning that unless we persevere, we will not enter God's rest. And so we experience the same kind of tension that they experienced. Again, that word, if, in chapter 3, verse 6. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And again, in chapter 3, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We face trials on every side. God's people have always faced trials on every side. We face trials within our own hearts. God's people, we, you, me, are fallen. We are like Paul in Romans chapter seven. The very good that we wanna do, we do not do. The very thing that we don't wanna do, that we do. And we find ourselves crying out every day, who will rescue me from this bondage of death? We face trials on every side throughout our wilderness journey. And the word that's repeated so often in this passage today calls us to consider today which way we'll go with our heart. The wilderness generation, the generation of David in Psalm 95, the generation who first received the letter of Hebrews, every generation since then, including including those of us in this room this morning, have to ask the question, which way will I go with my heart today? Will my heart be hardened or will it be made whole? So with that kind of generational question, the question that's always being presented to God's people as we make our way through the wilderness of this world, we're ready to consider what the author of Hebrews is saying about the working of God's word in verses 12 and 13. Let me go back and and read those verses for us. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I titled this sermon, The Personal, Powerful, and Penetrating Word of God. Those three words, personal, powerful, and penetrating, I got from uh, Dr. Michael Kruger in his excellent series of studies on the book of Hebrews. God's word is personal in two senses. It's personal in the sense, first, that it reveals the living God to us. Did you catch the shift when I read the passage between word of God in verse 12 and his eyes and the eyes of him? Let me, let me find it here and read it again real quick. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Bible is more than just true. The Bible's alive. John Frame said, when we encounter the word of God, we encounter God. 
His word is his personal presence. Why do you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible to get information? Do you read the Bible to better understand principles by which we can live godly lives? That's good. Or do you read the Bible to meet the living God? Because the living God is meeting us here in his word. Because of Jesus, are you receiving the invitation to fellowship with our Father as we read the living word of God? He meets us in the pages of this book. You know, in the, in the garden, God created Adam and Eve, and he invited them to enjoy fellowship with him in the cool of the day. And we have this wonderful picture of Adam and Eve and the Lord. Peace, fulfillment, joy, spiritual nourishment. The word of God is the cool of the day meeting place for us in this fallen world. This is where we go as followers of Jesus to be comforted, to be encouraged, to be nourished, to find joy. Because here we meet the God who is living and in his son has welcomed us into his family that we might know him, really know him, love him, even as we have been loved. So the Bible is personal in the sense that it reveals the person of God to us, but it's also personal in the sense that no one can hide from the eyes of the one who is revealed in this word. No person is hidden from his sight. That's what we saw in verse 13. Again, coming back to that picture in the garden of Adam and Eve after they had sinned, after they had taken of the fruit from the tree and had eaten of it, here comes God ready to find fellowship with them in the cool of the day and they were hiding. And God asks, where are you? Not because he didn't know, but because they didn't realize what they had done, cut themselves off from God. The word of God is personal in the sense that it exposes all of our spiritual nakedness before the Lord. In a sense, the word of God opens our eyes to who God is, but it also opens our eyes to who we are. And that's good news. It really is. God's word is also, secondly, powerful. God's word's personal. It reveals God to us, and it reveals us to ourselves as well. But it's also powerful. The word active in verse 12 is the word that literally means powerful. In other words, God's word accomplishes things. God speaks, and things happen. The creation, let there be light, God said, and there was light. I love the way uh, Richard Phillips put it in his commentary on Hebrews. God's word is living and active in the same way that Jesus' words were living and active when he stood before the tomb of his dead friend and cried out, and cried out, Lazarus, come forth. This is meant to bring us great encouragement as we make our way through the wilderness of this world. Think of 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God 
and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We hear that word profitable and we think, okay, if, if I will really study it and really apply it to my heart, if I will really you know, do this and that and the other thing, memorize it, then it will have an effect. And yes, we're called to, embra- we're, we're called to the work of studying the word. And yet the power for the transformation does not lie in us. It's in the living word of God that is powerful, that is active. We open our Bibles, we seek to grow in in righteousness and and God says, I'm meeting you here. It's my spirit works through my word in your heart to accomplish what I have promised that it will accomplish. You know, we come before God, we're like little children who, um, who you know, will, will carry the little children's hammer to help dad or mom with the big project of building the house. We feel like we're contributing something, and maybe we are, but it's mom and dad that are doing the work. So too spiritually. We, we come before God, we study God's word, we have so many resources at our hands. Some are able to, to you know, study Semitic and other ancient languages and get into the originals in ways that it benefit all of us. And yet, it's the word that does the work. The word of God is personal. The word of God is powerful. The word of God, like God himself, has, a, has power that cannot be thwarted. What he promises to those who love him will come to pass. What he promises to those who reject him will likewise come to pass. Tom Schreiner in his commentary on Hebrews says this, whether the focus of the word is on judgment or on salvation, God's word accomplishes what God intends. God's word is powerful. God's word is personal. God's word finally is penetrating. It is penetrating. The the word double-edged sword, that that phrase describes the Roman short sword. It was two feet long. It was incredibly sharp. It was was, uh, sharpened on both sides. It was made of strong material. It was able to pierce the strongest armor. And the spiritual parallels, of course, are obvious, aren't they? What's harder than the strongest armor? The human heart. God's word is able to penetrate even the hardened heart of man. Now, think about that and then think about the story that we're in. Think about the warning. Do not harden your heart. And think about the word, able to penetrate even the hardest of hearts. That is such good news. What that means that as we come, with all of us with varying degrees of hardened hearts, none of us can say, here I am with a heart fully and completely devoted to you, completely pliable in your hands, soft today, tomorrow, and forever before you. None of us can say that. We're all dealing with varying, to varying degrees with hearts that are hard and prone to get harder. 
Who will rescue us from this bondage of death? We could say with Paul. And yet God tells us through God's word that his word is able to penetrate our heart even at its hardest. That means that we can come crawling if we have to before God's word and open it up and say, God, do your work. My heart is hard. I can't change it. But your word says that it can. So do it in me, please, today. Because you have said, oh Lord, Today, if I hear your voice, I must not harden my heart. God calls us to wholeheartedness. I love the passage in 2 Chronicles 16. It provides such a wonderful contrast with the story that's told in Psalm 95 of the Exodus generation. 2 Chronicles 16, the author says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is, and the ESV translates blameless, but the word can actually also be translated whole, to give strong support to those whose hearts are whole toward him. We are warned about hardness of heart. God looks to give strong support on our journey to those who are whole of heart. How can we make our hearts whole? the living word of God will penetrate even the hardest of hearts. It will expose what's really there, the things that we don't want to see, that God sees because nothing's hidden from his sight. We're invited out into the open before God, confessing our sin, that he might make us whole. Listen, we talk about the need to practice repentance as a way of life in order to grow in wholehearted love for Jesus. This is why. The great benefit of practicing repentance as a way of life is that as we come before God's word and allow God to reveal two things to us, more of his holiness and more of our sinfulness, we are able to remember the cross of Jesus Christ and the love that God demonstrated for us there and turn from our sin and turn to him with ever-increasing gratitude for grace, ever-increasing love for God because of his love for us. In fact, you remember we love because God first loved us. And as we do, over the course of our wilderness wandering, something amazing happens. Our hearts become more and more whole. Not because of anything we've made, managed to do to ourselves, because of what God has promised to do for those who will hold fast to his word. Don't take God's promises for granted. If you stray from the message, you'll miss out on the rest. If you stray from God's word, your heart will grow older, grow harder over time. It will. And you may find yourself numbered among those who fell in the wilderness because you have demonstrated over a lifetime of hardening to God's word rather than humbling yourself under God's word that in fact you were never one of God's own to begin with. This is the warning that we need to hear from Hebrews. We must not take God's promises for granted. We must take the message of God to heart. We must, better said, 
let the message penetrate our hearts. We must let it expose what is really there so we can confess it to the Lord in repentance and faith and cling all the more to the promise God makes to those who do. You know, Moses led the children of the Exodus generation through the wilderness back to the edge of the land of Canaan. All the adults of the Exodus generation died in the wilderness. But the children of the Exodus generation were led by Moses back to the edge of the land. It was there that Moses reiterated God's law to them. That's Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is simply a reiteration of what was said at Sinai, now to the children of the Exodus generation on the edge of Canaan. There, Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. But Moses died in the wilderness. He could not deliver them into the land because of his sin. Someone once asked Jesus, which command of God was the greatest? And he, like Moses, answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he added the second that is like it, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Also like Moses, Jesus died. Not in the wilderness, but outside the walls of the city. And not for his sin, but for ours. Paradoxically, he did what Moses could not do. He delivered God's people into that promised rest. Do not harden your hearts to this great and glorious truth. Allow the word of God to do its work in you today, today, so that by grace you will persevere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask again that you would be working in, your heart, in our hearts through the power of your word. Lord, help us to be people who don't let our Bibles gather dust on our shelves or remain unopened on our phones or tablets or computers. But Lord, would you, oh God, would you help us to humble ourselves, to allow this short sword that is your double-edged word do its work in our hearts. Lord, help us to know that when we open it up and when we read and when you do work by your spirit to convict us of your sin, that, that of our sin, that that is good news. That there is nothing better than to have our eyes open to the reality of who you are and the reality of who we are and then the reality of what was accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, we forget that so quickly and as we do, our hearts grow harder and harder and harder, but your word is living. We meet you here in the pages of this book. Oh God, do your work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.